Hello everybody, welcome back to Witchfix. That was a really weird way for me to start my opening. So <laughs> we're going to do it again. Hello everybody, welcome back to Witchfix. Today we're looking at a non-fiction book, which is sort of, I guess, in the academic category. It's not like an, a how-to guide about witchcraft, but it's more of a study uh, on like the magical community as a whole. It's called Not in Kansas Anymore by Christine Wicker, the full title, Not in Kansas Anymore, A Curious Tale of How Magic is Transforming America. Uh, this book came out in 2005, I believe. Um, so it, it's, it's a little old now, but I guess it's going to be a kind of a good look at the sort of pagan scene, which was around when I was first getting into it. So uh, although obviously it will it will be about America, not England. So we'll see how we go with this. This book was recommended by Heidi, who emailed in with a recommendation and also said that they had brought my book. So this book jumped to the top of the pile. I'm not even going to lie. The nepotism is real, guys. Um, but the back of this book says, uh, witches, <laughs> vampires, witches and elves. Oh, my. Um, and then some like just random quotes from uh, from different people who read the book. So there isn't really much of a blurb. Um, but it is generally a look at vampires, witches and elves. Oh, my. Although it mainly focuses on hoodoo, I would say, like the majority of the book is about magic through the lens of like looking at hoodoo and the other kind of parts of it are sort of looking at like high magic um hermeticism that sort of thing uh so it's basically a look at why people believe in magic and why people believe that they are uh, magical creatures or that they have magical powers uh, and the author kind of going on this journey to dig into their own beliefs and question their own beliefs as a journalist while they look into this. Christy Wicker has written several other books around this subject. Uh, I think her first book was Lily Dale, The True Story of the Town That Talks to the Dead. Um, they've also written about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the fall of the, of the evangelical nation, the surprising crisis in the church. And I think Not in Kansas Anymore has also been published with the subtitle, not in Kansas anymore, dark arts, sex, spells, money, magic, and other things your neighbours aren't telling you. So um, I think it has maybe been reprinted a couple of times since 2005 when it came out. I didn't get off to the best start with this book, I will say, but there were, I think, some things in it that were interesting, and I was really glad that, um, that Heidi had recommended it, because I, I did get something out of it, I did get an interesting kind of outsider's perspective, and it was also semi my perspective, so it was kind of valuable to me because I am a kind of sceptic myself. When someone says to me that, you know, they've actually seen the goddess, like, physically in front of them, or they hear spirits talking to them, or they have been contacted by ghosts, or these things like that, I tend not to believe them. I tend to think that they are kind of experiencing a big case of kind of wishful thinking they want to believe so badly that that they are believing it because i've never experienced anything like that for myself although i've experienced like magic and i'm experiencing sort of like ghostly happenings i've never like physically seen like an edwardian man standing in front of me holding his own severed head so that is not an invitation for that to happen. <laughs> um, so I kind of came into it knowing that I was kind of both on the side of the community that was being looked at and on the side of the reporter, uh, you know, writing the book because I kind of fit between those two uh, demographics. So the book kind of starts out introducing us to uh, Christine as, as she goes about her 
investigation. So it sort of starts in the middle and then pulls us back to the start. And she's at a vampire sex party because this book kind of treats anything to do with like magical creatures, anything to do with magical worlds, as if it's part of the same kind of system. And I know that there is crossover between different systems. Like there'll be like people who say that they're vampires, but who also practice witchcraft and, and stuff like that. But it kind of treats it like the like like it's a fantasy tv show like true blood where all of these things occupy the same world and interact with each other which is, is personally not true for me i don't think i've ever interacted with a vampire or like a werewolf or an elf um or if i or if i have they didn't tell me that that's what they were so um that that was a little weird but also uh, unfortunately between pages eight and nine there was quite a large chunk of just transphobia um including like use of slurs it's basically like christine um talking to someone at a party trying to decide if they can tell if if this person is transgender or not and that really put me off the book and it wasn't the only incident of slightly problematic language there was the way that um black people people of color were referred to later on in the book using terms like blacks and using terms like chocolate skin was on the it, it, it made me uncomfortable it was a little bit problematic so I, I tried to kind of just let that go and get what i could from the book uh, but it was a little bit of a struggle because obviously that put me off the person whose observations that i was reading and it's like well why would i care about your opinion if, if this is the sort of stuff that you go around saying but I, I, tried, I tried to get past it and then got sort of further into the book. And the first kind of chunk is more about, I would say, vampires um, and why people believe in these kind of things. And then a general kind of why people believe in magic. And on page 15, Christine uh, kind of um, defines magic as a belief that all life is intrinsically connected with the earth, the planets, the stars and other life. Um, and at its most basic level, it means that there is a stream of power, life, energy, intelligence, spirit, call it what you will, that courses through the universe. Magical practice is the attempt to notice, to understand, to channel and to control that force. It is a method of co uh, connecting with the unseen. Or as the anthropologist Tanya M. Lerman wrote, a technology of the sacred. Someone else called it a physical prayer, or as some Wiccans put it, magic is a form of positive thinking, hypercharged, wonderfully optimistic. So we get that sort of definition of magic, which I broadly agree with. I think it's an excellent definition um, because it is so broad and because it includes so many different ways of, of looking at it. And magic isn't you know, one thing to everybody. It's lots of different things, lots of different people. Uh, so there's that. Um, with the mention of Wiccans, they're sort of like the witchy group that gets looked at, although Hoodoo gets looked at a lot more in terms of like magic. So Wiccans do get a slight look in, but mostly just looking at like Gardner and the kind of foundations of it. At the beginning of chapter two, we get a little story about um, the author's childhood where she was asked to pick out of two bananas. Like she and a girl were playing and they went to get a snack they had to pick one of two bananas and she chose the biggest one for herself and then it wasn't a very nice banana only part of it was edible and the other one the smaller one which she had sort of pawned off on the other girl was perfect it was, you know a perfect banana and from this she kind of got the idea that she had been seen like this thought process that she'd had where she tried to get more for herself and give someone else less on purpose 
had been seen, had been taken note of, and there was something kind of cosmic being done to redress the balance. Um, that as a child, she kind of saw this as a, a, a lesson in morality and also in kind of the interconnectedness of the universe. And I thought this was a really nice analogy because it kind of is similar to a lot of like magical thinking. Like if you do a spell against somebody and then something bad happens to you, you're going to connect those two events and be like, ah, this is payback for that thing I did, even though it could be completely random. Maybe your banana was just bad and it was always going to be bad no matter who ate it. It's sort of Schrodinger's bad banana. You, you don't know until you get it. Uh, so I, I find that quite an interesting metaphor, an interesting look at kind of magical logic. And one thing I will say is I found the writing in this book quite hard going. A lot of it is introspection. I saw some criticism on Goodreads in, in the reviews. Uh, a lot of them said that this was more about the author than it was about the subject. And a lot of it is about how she feels and how she's experiencing things and stories from her life. I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Obviously, it's going to be a very personal experience. And if it had been just a dry book of facts and dates and figures, then I feel like that would have been really hard to read for one thing but i think it could have done with maybe some more interviews with people unless it felt like i was seeing their environment seeing them through christine's eyes through the eyes of someone who didn't necessarily believe in these people which made them look a little bit skewed like i was kind of looking at them through a funhouse mirror where someone who might just be uh, you know a practitioner who happens to run a business automatically looks like a snake oil salesman just because of you know who is describing them and who who is writing about it and overall i found the general writing to be quite long-winded and a little bit slow to the extent that i kind of skimmed the last two chapters because i was kind of getting tired of seeing the same kind of story over and over again where she would talk about magical stuff and then sort of talk a little bit wryly about oh well it was probably all just this that and the other and then on the way home, when I stopped to get gas, this minor thing happened. And I thought, oh, maybe magic is real. And then going into the next phase of her investigation. But this cycle kind of happens a number of times. And the names all start to blur in together, like who she's talking to about what. And some of it is about, obviously, like other kin and, and things that I wasn't generally interested in from my point of view. So it, it does get a little bit holy towards the end. One of the magical people that um, the author spends most time with is a hoodoo practitioner and business owner called Kat, who is a Jewish woman. And she talks to her a lot about like hoodoo and a lot about the things that she sells in her shop. And on page 65, she says that she only believes uh, that, that the author only believes uh, in like good magic if she even believes in magic at all. She definitely doesn't believe in bad magic. And she's heard that this means that no one can work bad magic on her. And Kat says, oh yes, I call that the Alice defence after Alice in Wonderland, who was being attacked by cards but didn't think it was happening because everyone knows that cards can't attack people. And I thought that was interesting because you hear a lot of the time, like I've seen it in several films, I've read it in, in several non-fiction books, people think that if you don't believe in magic it can't affect you but I feel like it can you just won't know that it's magic so for example if you're hexed or cursed or whatever in some way someone's working against you maybe your car breaks down maybe you get like bad news at the doctor maybe you get in trouble at work but you're just going to see those things as bad luck you might even ask like you know why is all this stuff happening to me right now but because you don't believe in magic it doesn't even enter your sphere of reference to believe that that's what could be causing it. Just like most people wouldn't think that aliens had made their car break down. 
it wouldn't even occur to them to think of that as being a cause for that. And I think that is something that largely protects magical practitioners is because people don't go looking for them, for, for their workings to explain what's going wrong for them because it's just not in the sort of sphere of consciousness. Uh, to follow this up, though, Catherine says... If hoodoo works so well, why are white people still on top? Seems like they would have had all sorts of bad conjure thrown at them. They've sure deserved it. And Kat responds, well, I don't know. Maybe people want different things. Which um, doesn't really go to explaining a lot although obviously a lot of people like you even see in like political movements like taking feminism as an example everyone seems to be working for a common goal but a lot of people are actually working across purposes there are you know people who are just out for themselves and the, the, the groups that they fall into and then there's the more marginalized groups and sometimes these groups are kind of attacking each other and there's internal turmoil uh so that could be one reason for it like she's talking about the different parts of the movement but working in different ways both mundanely and magically but also i think it's kind of weird uh, for Catherine to say that you know this is evidence that hoodoo doesn't work because what has been you know obvious historically is a clear movement where civil rights have been increasing that obviously you know slavery did end segregation did end these things are being worked on it's just taking a lot of time and to say that hoodoo doesn't work because of you know there's still boundaries to be broken down it's like saying that protesting and these movements don't work in the mundane world it's like they are working they're just working very slowly because these systems were built over a large period of time and it takes a long time to unravel them because of like the resistance that you're getting so I found that a bit of an odd thing to say, like, as evidence that magic doesn't work. Um, it's still quite, you know, to to be honest with you, quite at the beginning of the book. So maybe she just hadn't considered, like, the complexities of it and, like, how it would all work um, and the logic behind it. Like, you don't have to believe in that logic, but it struck me as strange that he did, she didn't see that logic. Uh, so there we go. There is kind of a sense in the book that... The author is kind of poking fun at some of these more um, sort of fringe people. Like she's most accepting, I would say, of like hoodoo and things like that. But I think mainly because it relates to Christianity in a sort of very tenuous way. And that's her religion. So I think maybe it's a case of like she can kind of understand these things because they're more similar. Whereas when she talks about the people who believe that they are elves she talks about them in a way that is kind of irreverent kind of poking fun so she says on page 67 they have two grown children who are gainfully employed and apparently well adjusted the silver elves themselves teach computer workshops at the local community college and are getting advanced degrees in depth psychology do people you work with know that you're elves i asked oh yes they they know said the wife whose name is silver flame when they introduce us, they always say, this is Zardoa and Silverflame. They think they're elves. That's how they put it, that we think we're elves. She laughed, a perfectly normal female laugh without even a hint of silvery bells in it. So it does kind of feel like mentioning that their children are gamefully employed as if this assumption is that they wouldn't be sort of describing them as, as acting and being very human because, you know, obviously they're not elves just seemed, it struck me as being a little bit 
not necessarily like disrespectful not i wouldn't necessarily take it that far but just a little bit um mean-spirited then we get into a little bit uh there's a section called lessons in light and dark when basically the author's trying to learn about light and dark magic and uh refreshingly comes to the conclusion that what is often described as like dark magic isn't really dark magic and light magic isn't even so light there is just magic um but we get into the subject of of sex and sex magic and although there were a couple of phrases that sort of made me feel like there was some judgment and things going on what she actually says in sort of conclusion on this section is on page 71 72 living in the suburbs of milwaukee not exactly the epicenter of cool i was somewhat defensive about my feelings towards sex magic i'm apt to be called prim by those of more libertine bent i'm touchy about that i don't have trouble with people's feet or private parts being kissed or with people running around naked or with people putting sex together with the sacred even scourging has a long tradition among religious people seeking to transcend ordinary consciousness but i'm squeamish about public sex and pain being paired with spirituality especially when men are making the rules I know that fertility is a big part of goddess worship and that goddess worship is often a big part of magic and that temple prostitutes were common in polytheistic religions, but men were making the rules then too. It's been my experience that any time men start telling women how sex ought to be, women don't do well. Which I think is like an interesting kind of both sides way to look at the issue that obviously, yes, there is liberation in this. Yes, there is you know power in sex and power in reclaiming that but also you've got to look at the leaders and this comes after she's just talked about Gardner and Crowley uh, the leaders and what the motivations might be behind men who are setting up spiritual traditions that happen to involve a lot of naked young women uh, so I felt like that was quite balanced I really like the section sort of pages 80 uh, onwards for a couple of pages we talk about Kat's life and her experiences and how she was introduced to hoodoo and I picked up on this section because this is what I wish more of the, the book had been like, because we get told about, you know, Kat going to her first conjure shop, um, why she went there, like, you know, how she happened to, to, to arrive at the shop, her experience in talking to the owner, her first experiences with trying hoodoo sort of products and using them and how she came to be owning her own store and how, how all this came about. And I think those stories would have been a lot more interesting and should have been given a little bit more space compared to the author's reminiscence about their like Christian childhood and their experiences with Jesus. The end of the section of like light and dark magic is about sort of her meeting uh, Seether, who is Kat's husband, partner, I uh, can't remember, but basically that Kat did this spell to bring Seether into her life. And he's this, this great guy who's, you know, ticks all of the boxes of what she was looking for. He's like dedicated in a lot of ways does a lot of meditation all of this stuff and then it, finally after sort of talking about all that the author reveals that siva has a blood pact with satan um and she really reacts quite viscerally to this and is like he must have like dark energy um she says that he's a follower of the dark side um but then follows that up with saying I missed my first chance to move beyond the simple notions of good and bad that were helping to hold me in place. I would see Seaver again, however, and the lesson would still be pending. So I liked that it kind of took her initial reaction and then built upon that and was like, actually, it wasn't this simple. And, uh, you know, I, I got more into it later on. Chapter five is called Newton's Alchemy, Hegel's Grimoire and What Civilization Owes to Magic. I didn't find this section hugely interesting because it talks a teeny, teeny, tiny bit about low magic, like folk magic, which is what I'm interested in. And then it goes, also there's high magic and it talks about high magic for the rest of the chapter. And 
I would have liked a little bit more balance. But we do get a little bit about um, witchcraft and Wicca and also Salem. So that's that sort of hot area where she visits Salem. She talks a little bit about Gardner, about claims that he made at the start of like forming Wicca that have been called into question, like that he was initiated by witches, that all of this is like backed up by, you know, prior knowledge, hidden witch cults and whatever else. And she kind of talks about myths and how it doesn't necessarily really matter if they're literally true. It's what they mean to people. It's the right story coming along at the right time to like inspire you, which is you know quite a good way of looking at it. Um, she did say something interesting on page 89, um, it's, <laughs> at the bottom it says, With regard to the Wiccans, one vampire told me, they're the Jehovah's Witnesses of the magical community, totally sure that they are right. The Wiccans are also much maligned in the magical community as being too white light, fluffy bunny magic is sometimes called. Their insistence on ignoring the importance of the dark side is a dangerous distortion according to some magical people. Those two problems are the self-same problems that Christianity or any religion that aims at being completely good has always had. They go with aspirations of high holiness like fat with cheese, but I was too desperate to affirm the good for such depressing truisms to have any appeal to me. Uh, so, you know, it's taking that interesting kind of look at what I would say is probably the, the more solitary kind of wicker thing of like, you know, do no harm, don't do anything in case you cause harm, that, that kind of thing. Um and really kind of pinpointing it. I did get slightly annoyed at the end of this sort of Salem section. She goes to this like open circle type thing and basically the whole section is her kind of making fun of what's going on and saying that she doesn't like feel anything from the circle and not you know seeing the point of anything because she's coming really impractical shoes that are hurting her feet and she's gold because she's wearing kind of a silly witch outfit. Um, and it starts to rain and she's just a little bit miserable and it's like well these things are not the fault of what you're trying to experience you know if you go for a hike in nature to you know explore nature and get back to nature and you wear five inch stilettos you know it's not nature's fault for not inspiring you it's kind of your fault for being preoccupied with the stupid choices that you made uh and you know she calls it kind of like tacky and and silly and just i it kind of got on my nerves because you know she was being a little bit i don't really know what the word i'm i'm looking for is just being a little bit kind of insincere and like it didn't feel like she was trying hard enough to kind of get into the spirit of things it felt like she'd come along to whine basically uh, and then that sort of compounded it where she starts talking at the the bottom of page 105 uh, about how Wiccans don't charge for magic uh, like Christians would never charge for prayer. Of course, Christians do charge for prayer. I don't know if you've ever been to like a Catholic church or look into like some of that stuff. Like you definitely did pay for, for prayers to be said, especially for like dead people. You pay to have like prayers to be said for them. You pay to like candles. But there you go. But she says, uh, Wiccans don't charge for magic, which has shielded them from some of the bad reputation magic has for being the tool of charlatans. Like Christians who would never charge for prayer, they believe charging would be wrong, a bad use of magic. They will, however, charge $5 for a polished rock, $3 for a little bag of herbs, and nice sized prices for contacting spirits through readings. They also charge to teach magic. And this kind of seems like one of those kind of gotcha things where she's just like oh they say they don't charge for magic but they will charge for everything else you know they're saying they don't charge but really they do charge for goods and services that they are providing 
And like that, how is that a, a bad thing? If you went to buy a crystal or herbs from the supermarket, like if you're buying just normal herbs to cook with, you get charged for them. Is the supermarket a charlatan for selling you those herbs? Like there is an issue with like price inflation, like a lot of like specialist witchy stuff being very expensive in specialist witchy shops where you can get it in like mundane shops for a lot cheaper. But I don't know why it's such a bad thing. Like people are like, oh no, this is really bad. It's not like they're charging like $500 to do a spell for you, which if you believe in the spell and if you believe in what they're doing, you know, you're getting your money's worth because you're paying for something to be done that you believe in. Like, people pay for prayers to be said over dead bodies. But, like, people are taking their time and energy to teach you about witchcraft. To teach you about anything is worth money. So I don't get this whole, like, well, if you charge, you're a charlatan type thing. I think everybody charges for, for skills and services that they provide so that kind of rubbed me up the wrong way a bit because it felt like she was kind of toying around and kind of casting aspersions even at the end of the paragraph where she talks about cat um who's sort of criticizing other people's prices and how much that they charge for like root work and hoodie um Kat says, uh, says, she suggested that I do the work for myself since I was in the hoodoo class, but I knew root work required talent and I was fairly sure I didn't have any. No talent, no experience, no faith, no good mojo. I also like the thought that she or her staff pray over everything they sell. So at the end of that same paragraph, she's acknowledging that she, although she could do the work for herself, she doesn't have the faith, the experience, the talent, the knowledge that these other people have. But it feels like she's more standing up for hoodoo than she's standing up for Wicca, as if, although she said that it doesn't necessarily matter what its beginnings were, she still thinks that hoodoo is more um, valid and more worth charging money for, more legitimate um, that, than Wicca and sort of newer religions. Um, which, yeah, it just kind of rubbed me up the wrong way, because it's like, if, if magic is good enough to charge for from one person it's good enough to charge for from another person it just depends on how much you believe in that person individually um so there we go she also winds up this chapter by saying um that she paid someone for witch lessons she got offered them in a shop and like to contact this person later for witch lessons and it says um she gave me her number and we agreed to get in contact this is on page 112 about a month later i called she was eager to begin but first i'd have to send her 75 dollars put the check in the mail and bought plane tickets to salem she cashed my check but my witch lessons never arrived i later found out that a lot of local witches seem willing to take their chances with the threefold rule which says that they will get back whatever they put out threefold i heard dozens of stories about backbiting cheating threats even some illegal behavior Money has been at the heart of all the witch wars, um, she wrote. This is referring to an earlier quote from Helen Gifford. Um, when they sell us spiritual counselling for $75 an hour, offer to teach us their religion for $600, try to halt pendants and love potions and crystals, are they practising a serious religion or running a business, which is just like any other business? And it's like, I see the point that's being made here. I get the, the kind of idea behind it. But is it not possible to do both? I mean, there's always going to be people who aren't, you know, who say that they're praying over all these candles before they sell them and they're not actually doing it. Who say that they're using all these special magical ingredients, but it's actually kind of a crock. And that's why you need to take some of the onus onto yourself and be like, 
I'm going to see if I trust this person. I'm going to decide for myself if this person's magic is worth it. If you mail someone a check for $75 that you've spoken to maybe one time because they've just offered you witch lessons, that's not entirely their fault that you got suckered in. And as I said, again, like people used to pay for pardons. They used to pay for prayers to be said um, by like priests in church. They used to pay all sorts of things to the church. Did that make the, the church Christianity not a real religion? Because what they were offering services for money. I don't think anyone is saying that or certainly not a large group of people. So, yeah, I, I find it really weird. I think mostly a lot of people tend to be like pagan and run a pagan business because one it's obviously something they're incredibly interested in uh, and they want to make these things and that leads to sharing these things and that leads to you know building up a business and also because a lot of us tend to be sort of more alternative maybe struggle to have like sort of more mundane jobs not everybody I know a lot of you know well-adjusted pagans who have like office jobs and that but it's sort of like that area you get into where it's like, this is the way that I can make money doing things that make me happy. And then they're also like, obviously, the shysters. Um, but you're going to get them everywhere. And also in Salem, especially somewhere which is so commercial and so focused on like the witchcraft myth, it feels kind of unfair to judge all pagans and all Wiccans by the measure of what's going on in one very touristy place. And this is something that kind of happens throughout the book. Uh, it would kind of ruffle my feathers and then it would smooth them down again at the end of the chapter. Uh, so what she says on page 113 is, maybe my expectations for Salem's good magic were too high. I'd had higher hopes for the Wiccans than for any other magical group. Anybody who knows anything about them says they are a loving nature orientated bunch of gentle people who seek to do only good. Kat says Wicca is Christianity with a goddess. I don't know what she I don't know that she means it as a compliment, but I took it as one. That upped my expectations even more, but I guess it shouldn't have. I know quite well that Christians also talk a better game than they are able to live. So do we all perhaps. So even though it occasionally does seem like she's being very harsh on talking about magical people and the motivations of magical people, there is kind of that awareness brought in sort of usually at the end to say that she acknowledges that this happens everywhere. This happens in lots of different groups. So it felt like kind of just like a little bone being thrown at the end, but at least it was there. She then goes on to talk a little bit about hexing um, and various like things like causes and effects of doing magic. It makes an interesting point on page 116. Some of the best reasons not to do magic are the people who have done it. The promise of power can lead to paranoia and delusions of grandeur. It can also cause people to dwell on avenging slights which they would be better off forgetting. It can cause people to imagine that others are responsible for bad fortune or illness when in fact they are responsible for themselves or no one is responsible. I saw temptations towards all of that in my research and many people succumbed. And you do see that a lot, I think, if you've spent any time in like pagan communities or like magical communities online. People coming in going, am I cursed? Is this cursed? Is this a sign that someone's working against me? Am I haunted? Um, and I think it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about sort of people who don't believe in magic not blaming magic but people who do believe in magic maybe disproportionately attribute blame to a magic or other sort of supernatural means when they should just be looking for the fact that they haven't had their car serviced in two years 
so there's that. Uh, another interesting point about hexing comes on page 121. Um, so I think this is a quote from somebody else. Um, it says, one more test when a hex is in question comes from Lusa Tesh, I think, a priestess of the Yoruba Lukumi tradition. I'm probably saying all of these words wrong and I do apologise, uh, which is another name for Santeria. Uh, it says, hexing is appropriate when you seek to stop an abusive action for which you would be willing to receive the same punishment if you committed the same crime. So if you are prepared to curse your partner to have burning pee because they cheated on you, you have to be willing that if you cheated on somebody, that that punishment be meted out against you, that you would also deserve it. It's not a case of you have wronged me. So you deserve punishment. But if I wrong someone else, I am in the right. Um, I found that really interesting and definitely a good kind of rule to live by. I've always said, like, um, some people that curse people, it's like, would you be willing to accept the kind of karmic backlash? Because people are like, oh, no, you can avoid it. You can just take a salt bath. Nothing bad will happen to you. I don't personally believe that. I think if you're going to go out and curse somebody... It's because you are willing to accept whatever comes back to you from that. Just like if you were going to walk up to them on the street and shoot them in the face, you would be accepting the consequences from that. You can't then go and try and plead all these different things and try all these loopholes. If you believe in your actions enough to do them, you should believe in them enough to accept the consequences. This I just thought was kind of a cute idea and something that I would definitely be up for doing. It's page 140 and... Um, I think it's about, yeah, it's about someone who is a witch and a vampire, but it's just something that she says she does, which seems like a cool idea, so I thought I'd share it. It says, both palms, uh, both her palms are tattooed with pentacles that she uses to send and receive energy. She also has a pumpkin tattoo. She grows pumpkins in her garden, carving runes and other ancient symbols on them. As they grow, the magic grows. Then you make a pie and the magic goes inside of you, she said. And I just thought that was such a great idea for, like, enchanting... Um, vegetables if you're growing vegetables in your garden this just i found a bit weird so i thought i'd mention it. it's page 142 she's talking about um i think the same person's baby girl um there's a the picture of her and it says oh the baby's called carrion as in like roadkill which i don't think is a terrible name it's it's nice um but it's a black and white picture from when the baby was six months old and it says it's a full day and the child is naked, sitting on the ground surrounded by fallen leaves. Her legs cover any part of her that might make the photo pornographic. Tracy, the moralist, would never show salacious photos of her child. And I found this quite weird terminology to use. This I'm going to put in that sort of group of terms that we used in the book that kind of made me uncomfortable, whether it was the sort of racial terms, the transphobic incident at the beginning, the fact that she refers to... Um, the girl in the banana story as the crippled girl. Um, but this all just made me a little bit uncomfortable because I can't imagine a situation in which I would find a picture of a baby to be pornographic, even if they were naked. Like, I don't assume that when next door's toddler is running around the garden in the nude, that that's like a live sex show. It, it just struck me as weird to refer to any picture of a nude child as being salacious. Um... Which I kind of get what she's saying. I don't think that she's being like weird and pervy. I just think that it was just a very odd phrase to read. And it kind of stuck in my mind. So I thought I'd mention it.
in sort of chapter 12 she talks about the bridges into magic and i found this section quite interesting although it, it was kind of wearing on me at this point the, the way the book was written it was it was taking a lot for me to read so after the section i did begin to skim um but the, the sort of ways into magic um the the bridges sorry um the four bridges so there's like the way of the child seeing the world like a child with a child's belief um and not um having a dividing line between animate and non-animate things and i thought that was quite interesting because obviously when you're a child or maybe just when i was a child but you know you think your toys are real you don't want to you know throw them in a corner you want to tuck them into bed nicely because they have you know feelings and you might upset them uh, and things like that and i think that is interestingly quite similar to how some pagans some magical people interact with the world like leaving payment when you take wood from a tree so as not to hurt the, the tree's feelings or incur its wrath the way we kind of interact with um symbols of deities treating them with respect um treating them as, to a certain extent as if they were the deity itself as if it were a, a powerful being and so i found that quite interesting the second way is suffering and it talks about how like people come to magic after having great suffering in their life and i think that's true of, of, of a lot of different religions but magic specifically is a way of sort of regaining control in a an area where you have no control and so she talks about like divorces and relationships breaking down the third bridge is um sort of religious um, she talks about the rebellious the disciple, the people who kind of want to go and, and learn and experience different things. Um, that one seemed a little bit less clear to me, I'm not going to lie. It, it, I kind of didn't really get what was being got out there. And the fourth bridge is kind of about experience. Um, so people ex embrace magic because of their own experiences, but then as they experience magic, they begin to believe in it. Um, it's sort of, sort of because of the community they're in, the sort of mindset they're confronted with all the time. Um, they adopt the language of whatever group or path that they've chosen. And then they begin to pay attention to the things that are important to that path. So they begin to pay attention to like the changing seasons, to the signs and signals of animals and all this stuff. And so instead of kind of turning to magic because of the experiences they've had, the suffering that they've had, they begin to experience magic because they are so tuned into it, if that makes sense. Which again is a, is a great point and something that I've definitely experienced myself. Uh, and later on she says on page 264, we did skip a big chunk there because I was mostly skimming. Um, she says that whether these things exist outside the human imagination or merely inside it doesn't matter as much to me as it does to some people. If the Jesus who showed up in my dream lives only within my heart, he's still there. What matters to me is that we can allow ourselves to participate in the richness available to us. We're all, um, all we have to do is choose. So that was sort of like her last um, words in the book. That's like the second to last paragraph. And it's talking about how I guess it doesn't necessarily like her conclusion is basically like to some people this stuff is real to some people it is allegorical to some people it isn't real but does it really matter if it's real or not if it has a beneficial effect if it's allowing you to be the best version of yourself that it can be and you can kind of look at that through like a christian lens and say you know if you're trying not to sin if you're doing unto others as you want them to do unto you is if it's because you're afraid of going to hell or because you want to please a god that may or may not be real as long as you're doing good things 
does it really matter? The, the kind of issue comes when you're doing bad things and justifying it with something that you know other people don't necessarily believe in or that may or may not be real. So I did find it a very interesting book. Uh, I can't really do it justice in terms of a review, although this review has run on way too long, because there were so many different like talking points and so many different sections. I've actually not done like all of the talking points that I had, but it was definitely a really interesting read um, in terms of a lot of the ideas that were brought up. The writing style I could kind of take or leave. I kind of wish it had been as interesting as the subject matter. But it was quite an interesting book. Uh, I would encourage people to you know, get their hands on it. You can buy it from Amazon, although my copy had to come from America. So I don't know how many copies there are available in the US, uh, in the UK that don't have to be imported from America. But, you know, you can get hold of it on Amazon, I think, maybe as a Kindle book. Maybe not. Um, it's not a particularly long read. But I think it's an interesting look at our community or like a past version of our community from an outsider. Um, and although it isn't solely about witchcraft and Wicca um, and hoodoo and like magical systems, there's other stuff in there as well. It is quite interesting to see, you know, how people lump us in with other communities that we may or may not have ever interacted with ourselves. So a great recommendation. Go give it a read. Thank you very much, Heidi. And in the meantime, I will see you in the next episode. Bye. <laughs>